0: It looks so easy and a lot of people think that like I just started a business and like, <laughs> damn, they, were, they were like I was in Target. I don't know. It took 10 years of pure sweat equity until I got to Target. My first business, I started in 1999 and I still this day, I, I always say like I had employee of three and then that was me, myself and I, three of us. We did everything. I mean, we're talking about delivery. To uh, I was the president, the the secretary, the receptionist, the janitor. I, I did everything.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Lagorio Chafkin. Today's episode, The Way Out of Worry. I've interviewed Tony Co. several times over the years. Because over the years, Tony Coe has founded three totally different, totally fascinating companies. Her first, NYX Cosmetics, spelled NYX, you'd recognize from the beauty aisle of Target and other major national retailers. She built the company from scratch starting in 1999 using experience she had gained over the years working with her family's beauty supply stores after they emigrated from Korea when she was a teenager. But a massive success in that business, which turned into a massive exit for Tony, meant she couldn't work in the beauty industry, where she'd spent not just her career but her life for five years. So she went in a totally different direction and learned some of the most important lessons of her career when she stepped away from her passion. I won't spoil too much, but let me just say in brief, it didn't go well. These days, Tony is back in beauty, and both her heart and her head are fully engaged in building a company that creates and brings to customers new beauty brands from influencers, designers, and celebrities. I'll talk with her about how she got to a very dark place. But then climbed back up, back to the creative company building place she is today. But before Tony was a serial entrepreneur and master brand architect, she was an immigrant kid being immersely schooled in entrepreneurship.
0: I am a third generation entrepreneur in my family. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur and I turned out to be an entrepreneur too. And I think I kind of always knew that I was going to do something on my own. My grandfather was in a fabric business in Korea, specifically like fabric dyeing business. And uh, he was very successful. And I'm the last child in my family, meaning that I'm four years behind my older sister and three years behind my older brother. So when they went off to school, I spent a lot of time alone and I spent a lot of time alone being around adults in the family. We're multi-generational families. So we all live at the same compound kind of. And uh, I spent a lot of time around being around my grandfather and, you know, I was very young, but, you know, I think I had a lot of uh, subconscious learning just by overhearing the conversations that they had, like without even learning, I was learning. And I just realized this recently. It's like an incredible discovery that I realized and I'm very grateful for it. My family moved to U.S. when I was 13 years old and I came to this country without knowing how to speak the language. So I knew how to say yes, no, and thank you. And I was put in seventh grade and I was like, boom, dropped in and my parents basically said, go no tutor, nothing. I had to just learn everything from scratch. Like you can't understand, you can't speak, you can't read. It, It was really, really tough years, but I think like me being like, like very independent and I'm a little stubborn as well, Uh, being like a little stubborn and being very independent and self-reliant, self-resilience, like all of that, like really helped me be who I am. And uh, I started working in the family business, first generation immigrant. That's what a lot of people do. A lot of families do. Uh, they start a small business and you, as the immigrant parents, children go to work. So I went to work after schools, weekends, vacations. We never took a day off. Um, I think we did not have a day off for like the first, until I was like 21, I was 21 or 22. Um, So from 13 to 21 or 22, so like nine years, eight, eight, nine years, we had zero days off because our store was always open. And when we took our first vacation, actually, we were forced to go on a vacation because uh, this is when an uh, 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 earthquake happened in Northridge. And our our locations, our retail locations were in that area. And then the roof concaved in on our business. So we basically lost everything. So we no longer had a business. So my mom decided, hey, you know what? If this is going to be, let it be. And we went to Hawaii
1: for the first time. <laughs> wow, you you literally had to be forced out <laughs> by a natural disaster. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your parents' business was it in cosmetics? Yes, yes, yes. So you had you had an education in this very sort of specific realm um, that you you took into setting out on your own um, and founding NYX cosmetics. Can you tell me about that journey and the first, you know, first kind of seeds of the idea and how it turned into, how you turned it into its own brand?
0: That's very true. Um, I feel very fortunate that I have been put on this path. And another great advantage that I had was that I am a female. So I am a consumer. I am like the ultimate test subject, that you could find for a cosmetic company. And because my parents, uh, they got into a beauty supply business, um, I immediately, and I was working at the family business all the time. um, I had this like really unique first experience being around consumers. And from very young age, I got to see and experience the consumer behavior on very very face-to-face, like um, in a very close proximity experience. And I realized, you know, there's a few things. People need to have choices. But when you give too much choice, a lot of people get overwhelmed. They want enough help, but not too much help where it feels forced. And how certain colors should uh, be displayed next to each other, that really affects the sale. What product should be displayed next to what product? That affects the sale. Like there's these
1: like small little nuances that school system cannot teach you. Like it has to be like a, a experience. It's amazing that you had that experience interacting with customers and understanding what they want and what their motivations are and also new kind of the back end of the business, right? Like you knew how much you know the markup was on all the different cosmetics. You knew what kind of market you could potentially break into. Was that kind of calculation something that that really went into founding N Y X?
0: Oh yeah, immediately from I mean, even before I started the business, I mean, because that's like I saw I saw the whole structure of the how the business uh, flew and how the markup system was working at different tiers of the business from very young age. So there were the manufacturers at the factories. There were, and like for my business specifically, because we were importing from overseas from Asia. So there are the Asian manufacturers and then there's the importers and then there's the distributor and then there's the wholesaler, then there's the retailer and then the consumers went to the retailers to buy it. So from starting point to the product gets into a consumer hand, it is one, two, three, four, five between five to four, between anywhere between four to six steps, six tiers of markups. And along the way, everybody makes between 10% to 30%. One dollar product ends up being how how a one dollar cost of goods merchandise ends up being $10 by the time it lands at a consumer's hand, um, because everybody's making 10, 20, 30% along the way. And then your final, the retailers. Needs a hundred percent markup, meaning if they bought it for uh, five dollars, they need to sell it for ten dollars. Because they're these guys, the retailers are the guys who selling at the least volume, quantity wise. So they make the most markup because it's all volume play. So I've known this from very early on, and so you know I was very conscious of how much I was buying the product and what the SRP needed to be, uh, such as the retail price because i was so immersed in the whole business environment from very early on
1: yeah yeah and and you your brand really kind of took drugstores by storm i'm so curious how you got into those like just prime drugstores all over the country and how you kept those prices to a really accessible place well you
0: know the thing is is it looks so easy and a lot of people think that like I just started a business and like, <laughs> damn, they, were, they were like I was in Target. I don't know. It took 10 years of pure sweat equity until I got to Target. My first business, I started in 1999 and I still this day I, I always say like I had employee of three and then that was me, myself and I, three of us. We did everything. I mean, we're talking about delivery to, uh, I was the president, the the secretary, the receptionist, the janitor. I, I did everything. And it took 10 years until I landed Target. So I think it was like 2009 or even like 2010 when we um, finally um, went into Target. And it was a huge success because the entire Brand was built on a uh, word of mouth marketing because we weren't hiring supermodels to uh, represent our brand. We weren't, you know, influencer marketing was not even a thing that it didn't exist. Um, we weren't buying like ads on expensive glossy magazines. Like we weren't spending any of that money. So therefore I was able to sell products at a much lower price than the other guys did because I didn't have like 30, because these makeup brands spend like up to 30, 40% of their income of, uh, or like their net revenue into marketing budget. But my marketing budget was a zero. My marketing budget was zero. And instead I gave that discount to my consumer. So I was selling $5 lipsticks. But these $5 lipsticks were as good as your $15, $18 lipsticks. And also I used really simple packaging because it's like, I look at packaging as like supermodels, right? It's the product has to stand, not the packaging. I've changed this, uh, this philosophy a little bit, uh, now, um, but you know, back with NYX cosmetics, mixed cosmetics, like my whole thing was, I want the formula to stand out, not the packaging to stand out. So I adopted very simple packaging and by adapting simple packaging, my cost of goods were lower than some of the other brands as well. So like, it was like double whammy.
1: It feels so quickly that all of a sudden you are, you're faced with a possible acquisition, um, and several offers um but you know you, you went with in 2014 um an an acquisition by loreal for um and what's been estimated as 500 million i don't know if that number's quite right you can <laughs> you can let me know but how did that come about and how did that feel for you that
0: was very interesting year. I cannot um, confirm or deny the number because I have non-disclosure agreements. So I cannot personally say that the dollar amount, but you could just Google it and like see it on like <laughs> it's it's plaster everywhere. Um, it was one of the biggest deal in the beauty space that year. I paved the path for a lot of these other beauty brands to exit because after my exit, it was like, bam, 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 domino effect. Like all of these brands going going out. Prices start going up and up and up, and you saw like brands going for over a billion dollars, uh, especially in the prestige space. When you're in the prestige space, like you get much better multiples on your EBITDA as well. But anyway, um, going back to that year, that was a very, very interesting year. I had, um, and that like how it all started was I brought in a, um, a private equity smart money in 2009, end of 2009. And when the investors come in, they always have an exit strategy. They have to, like, they, it's not their money. They went and raised that money from somebody else to invest in their fund. So they have to return their money to their investors as well. So um, they came in 2009 and then clearly they wanted to sell the company and be out of the business like in five years. Yeah. Usually it's five average, when it's short is three, when it's long is seven years.
1: So making that decision to take the private equity money, was it necessary to scale at that time, but then also sort of this like double-edged sword for you of like, okay, I'm going to grow this business faster with this money, but now there's a ticking clock on it
0: yes and no at the same time because they never like gave me that kind of a pressure and they were really amazing partners they added a lot of value um it was HCP capital um they were out of like boutique from out of chicago and they like these guys came in at the right time with the right experience um so i say the smart money because when i raised this capital my company was financially secure, safe. Like we, we had cash in the accounts. Like we didn't need to raise money, but I needed smart money because I needed to partner with somebody who could get me in front of Target, the CVS, the Walgreens, like the big box retailers, you know? and But I just didn't know how to like, I was doing all these trade shows that costing me so much money uh, year over year. And I wasn't going anywhere. Like no like no buyer would take the brand. And so I needed to partner with somebody who could put me in contact with the right sales group, with the right buyer at accounts. And these guys had just exited out of a hair care space and that was in the same retailer that I wanted to get into. So after I, they did a minority deal. And so after they came in, they put me in contact with a sales rep group out of uh, Minneapolis. Um, and that was kind of like really revolutionary. Like that was like a turning point, like pivoting point where the company was just never the same again. And you know what I realized doing uh, going through a capital raise too was, I did so they did so much due diligence on my company. And like you know, like at first I'm like, oh my god, these guys are asking thousand different questions. It's driving me crazy. But I realized, oh my god, like. It was such a great review, overview of this business that I had owned for 10 years by myself. And it was really amazing way to like, like take a step back from my own company, because you know, like when you're like thick in the grind and just like working every day, like you don't take a step back and like, look at your company. I finally got a chance to like take a step back look at my company. And I said, wow, I learned so much about my own business that I would never otherwise think about learning.
1: Yeah, yeah. What did it teach you in specific? Uh, I needed to have a better
0: accounting system. <laughs> number one thing. <laughs> we we're just basically t- like we didn't have time to file. We we're so busy when and I didn't have a controller. I didn't have a CFO. I had, I didn't even have an accounting manager. I had like one bookkeeper that was managing like multi, multi, multi-million dollar business. And I was like, okay, like. At a certain point, things need to change and the system needs to put in, and like we need to bring in professional help and da da da. So then the first thing I did was hiring a CFO. And that was amazing. I mean, such a gift. But if I didn't go through the process of bringing an investor, I would have probably not hired a CFO. I would be like, had pay somebody like how much to do that job? Like, no way. I would have never hired a CFO, but I did. That again revolutionized my business too. So so much learning from that. And so uh they came on and we kind of like we just we were just blowing through and um target we did such a great business at Target that uh we expanded really quickly and also at the same time now because we were doing um so well at Target the words get around pretty fast. Now we were being approached by other retailers and like it just clicked on me i'm like ah like when you go to sell it's really hard to sell like the real way to sell is for your products to just fly off the shelf and have the approach have the buyers approach you instead of you approaching the buyers um so that's like what happened and uh but again like i go back to where my investors were really like we had a really great partnership and we really had zero issues the whole time. But that's partly because we were the company was doing so well. We're so profitable. I was making so much money for these companies. Why wouldn't they leave me alone?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you once you got into Target and you say the product was just flying off the shelves, it's more than a decade into running your business. Um, did that feel like a tipping point to you? Did it, And what did that feel like to just know, like, Wow, I've made it. Did it feel like that? And and how did that feel?
0: No, never. <laughs> Till this day, I don't feel like I've made it.
1: That's so interesting. And to be clear, you've started uh, three, I believe, companies since that point. <laughs> I'm
0: on my third company.
1: Okay, great. And also one one venture firm.
0: I have yes. So I have my real estate investment. Um that's my biggest portfolio actually and then I have an investment firm uh, I started this in this small fund that I had um, investing especially in female founded companies but um, the funds retire since all the money has been deployed and uh, I'm just very a passive investor now
1: when we come back I'll talk to Tony about how she pulled herself out of a dark place by putting her creativity first but first a quick break
0: Visit Slack.com to get started.
1: Tell me about um, what happened after you sold NYX Cosmetics and how you got into sunglasses. So
0: I signed a five-year non-compete with uh, L'Oreal after I sold my company. Um, I only really wanted to sign three and I was pushing for it. But, you know, it just came down to like, had to make the final decision. And at the end, I just went, go ahead and take it. Go ahead and take five years off my life. (laughs) And I ended up signing signing the five years uh, non-compete. And it was like pretty tough. Like I couldn't invest. I couldn't sit on board. I couldn't advise. I couldn't own shares. I couldn't, of course I couldn't start um, anything in beauty for five years. So um, after I sold my company, I actually became like really depressed. That's a whole different topic, but I was I was uh, clinically depressed, um, and I didn't know what to do with myself with all this like time that I had on, on my hand. I mean, mind you, like I started working when I was fourteen, and I've never stopped working. And um, I don't know how to. I, it's almost like I don't know how to not work because it's just been my entire life it's almost like my self-identity, your life passion, your life's mission, your life's like everything. And like that all, like that gets like pulled under you and you kind of like shrivel and go, wait a minute, who am I? Like, what am I here to do? Like you have time to think about things. And it just was not a really good place. And I needed to like pick myself up. And I, I'm a, um, I'm more of a very creative business owner, entrepreneur. Um, I'm a very visual person. I'm a creative person. I'm not your typical like ops, like or finance based uh, strong business owner. And I needed to like really put my creative energy into something, creating products. Um, I find joy in it. So I looked at like a lot of different industries that I could possibly get into. And sunglasses was one of it because there was a lot of value to it. Like I looked at the industry and I was like, well, this is, you could sell to both men and women. It's, doesn't expire it's small enough where you don't have like a huge a huge warehouse needs um and that was like very attracted to and every single person like almost everybody owns sunglasses so it was very like attracted to me um and I did market research and I said well and and I personally love wearing sunglasses I it's almost like a fashion statement I feel like some less also gives you a personality, like depending on whether you were aviator or cat eye oversized, like it like really gives you a personality. And so I started the business and once I started the business and, you know, opened that that led to the pot and like really like dove in, I realized, oh shoot, like there, I should have done a little more market research. <laughs> um, there were a lot of things that I didn't know. I didn't know, like, the manufacturing process. Just because I like wearing sunglasses does not make me an expert in that industry. I didn't know where to sell the products. Uh, I had never sold it before. And I like, and then I realized like it this industry is really dominated by this one other company that owns like 85% of the entire market share, like literally laterally. Like this company owns the brands, the retail, the like all the outlets that like, they own everything. Like, the, like it's so hard to get a get a footing in. And the only place that you could really sell the product is e But that's one area that I'm really unfamiliar with. It's something like tech is not my jam. <laughs> so it wasn't a huge success that I had hoped for. Um, I ended up exiting out of that business uh, for an undisclosed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's doing air quotes <laughs> in 2019. But I have to say, This low that I experienced from my second business was much more of a value teacher to me. So much more valuable teacher to me than my high from my first business.
1: Yeah. What did you learn in in specific? Um, What do you take with you from that experience?
0: It's not about like a very specific learning. Mm
1: -hmm. You know
0: what's really important is not just to learn about what to do, but learning what not to do. is so important. And, you know, like we, uh, we all are driven to like make a to-do list, right? It's so important to make a to-do list, but also at the same time, to make a list of things to not do. Don't waste time on like certain things. You don't have to like jot it down, but you know, like it's, it's, it's instinctively know what not to do. Besides like the learning, I think the biggest value that it's given me is my ego death, like literally, like I needed to have that moment. I needed to have that experience. I needed to experience it for me to be the person that I am today.
1: Yeah. And the creativity of starting that business um, did lift you out of the de- the depression that you were in. Is that, isn't that right? It, it did. I was able to focus my energy in things that I love to do. Yeah. I mean, you know what? People pay money
0: to go learn how to salsa dance, how to paint, how to do like all these things. I was pay, I go see a therapist to, you know, like I paid the due for me to go and play. That cost me a lot of money. But <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh,
1: your non-compete did expire. And now you are the founder of Bespoke Beauty Brands. Um, tell me about the business.
0: Yeah, so my uh, non-compete expired on July thirty of twenty nineteen, and I took a day off and started my third company in the beauty beauty space on August one of twenty nineteen, and it's I'm back in the beauty business, but then the concept's really different. It's not a brand that I own wholly, so now I develop brands for influencers and celebrities and one brand I have is a fashion designer brand and I call it a beauty incubator because I think it's like the easiest way to explain the concept of it but it's not really a beauty incubator because we don't just incubate and then send it off uh we will see it through exits meaning we'll see it from the birth to not the death but you know uh like college graduation let's just say that So uh, my company, Peaceful Beauty Brands, uh, we launch brands and we oversee the entire 360 of the business. And we also finance it for an equity deal with our partners. So we don't pay our partners like a signing fee or money, basically, but we give them a substantial equity
1: in the company. Got it. And so you manage the creation, the marketing, this in-store placement of, your four brands now, is that correct?
0: Uh, right now, one, two, three, four brands. I've launched four brands in two and a half years now. One is Kimchi Chic. Uh, it's a drag queen brand. So this brand is like super colorful, funky, uh, like the packaging is like really, like, we have like really outlandish Product names like our best-selling face powder is called Pub Pub Pass. It's a uh, loose face powder. Um, the second brand is with a fashion designer Jason Wu. Uh, I love him. I adore him. Um, and we launched the brand in partnership with Target. But now we're going into other retailers as well. The brand's doing really well. Um, and uh, with the first brand, Kinky Shake, we've launched this in uh, CBS. With their beauty stores so and uh, the response has been tremendous so i'm um, really happy with that i have a men's skincare line um and then the last one that we launched is a eyelash brand with a influencer her name is leanne v and it's called leanne v beauty and we're going to go beyond and above just eyelashes um we're get work like about to launch some really exciting products and uh, really looking forward to it i'm just having a lot of fun. And, you know, if you're not having fun, like, what's the purpose?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. It, that sounds like such an interesting mix and diversity of different products and different lines and different styles. So that must be really exciting. Tell me about the company now. How how big, how many employees do you have? Um, where are they based? How is growth doing during the pandemic too?
0: Yeah. You know, incredibly, we did really well during the pandemic. Wow. And my, again, this company, the entire company is less than three years old. Um, and the first brand that we launched, uh Chi Beauty, we grew 35%. So from 2019, the first, it was the first year, the second year, uh, we grew uh, 35% from the first year and we're on our, going into our Third year, and this year it looks like we're going to grow about 40%. So we're doing really well Um, with Jason Wu as well. uh, We just launched this last year and we started with um, 300 or 400 target doors. And since then, we've had expansion. We were allowed um, another 196 doors or something. So we're in close to 500 doors at Target with uh, Jason Wu. Uh, Mine Johnson, we just launched it about six month ago, I would say and uh, we just brought on our first executive team for that brand so I'm really looking forward to see this brand expanding and we and me, we're growing every day and we are at about 30 employees right now. Um, and uh, uh, everybody's like, I love my team. We're like, we're small but mighty. Everybody has real passion for the products that they do, from our designers to the sales team. Our company motto is happy people creating beautiful, happy products.
1: I love that. Um, oh, there's been such a rise in celebrity collaborations and beauty line foundings um, uh, over the recent years. It's just like there are these breakout successes over and over again. Whereas I feel like as a business reporter, I see fewer of those across apparel and goods and services is there something about cosmetics or the marketing of them that that makes you know influencers and celebrities have this ability to break in or find their footing there in terms of whether it's just their name on a package or whether they're really actively involved?
0: Yeah. So there has been a lot of celebrity brands right especially lately. I do feel that it is a little too much too many But hey, you know what? My mom has this best saying, there's enough fish in the water for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm a true believer in, like I don't see or view anybody or any brand, any other company as competition. I have never viewed anybody as a competition. Um, That's because I truly believe as the market grows, the entire industry grows. And as if the entire industry grows, it benefits every brand, you know, and it's a natural selection. Uh, the brands that do well, it doesn't matter what the status of the economy is or like what the condition is. They'll always do well, but the companies that's not doing well are going to drop out and it is just what it is. And I think beauty industry, it's because there's a lot of suppliers and the, the entry is not as hard as some of the other industries with the like Alibaba. I think that kind of like really changed the industry, not
1: just Alibaba. I'm just talking about the whole internet, like internet, wholesale and internet of everything. The Google search.
0: Yes. Specifically. Yes, you could basically just sit in your computer and type in lipstick manufacturer in China or or uh, eye cream manufacturer in Korea, and that it'll give you ten names immediately not like when I started my first business, like when I first started my business, man, having that Rolodex of your supplier, that was like top secret. This is like things that you kept in your 007 bag and like, (laughs) and like, you're the only one who knows the code, how to open it, because you know uh, where you bought your product was you don't tell it to anybody. But now it's like it's open information, open source, open, open platform. So it's really easy to find suppliers. And there's a lot of suppliers, therefore, a lot of brand, a lot of people could easily just find a supplier and launch a brand.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, but just having the ability to launch something is definitely no guarantee of success. Like, what are some tips you might have for other founders across industries in in finding that right fit um, with a product and a consumer and, and making your product stand out as you have with, um, you know, each of the brands you've created recently.
0: So here's the thing, launching, getting products to a launch, getting company to a launch, a brand to launch is the easiest part that you're going to do. Um, it's the easiest thing. And then you're going to find a supplier, go through the whole due diligence, the whole motions of producing products. Go through FDA, go through like import process. You're going to go through all of this. Now you have your product. It's in your warehouse uh, or like at a 3PL. And the real headache, the problem, the stress, just the everything, the whole, the, the ride, the joy, the suspense, the thrill of being an entrepreneur starts at that moment. And you open the lid and you look inside and it's like, oh my God, I didn't think about this. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. People spend so much time building their uh, business plan. I say, you know, toss it in the trash, like shred it because nothing in... Your business in real life business is gonna go flow through how you planned it. No, so number one most important is to be flexible. You have to be bendable. You have to be moldable. You have to be flexible and go with the flow. Like literally, a lot of the times, just go with the flow. You have to be master of your of yourself, of your thought. Business itself is like being stressful is given having multiple problems thrown in your face is given. There's so many variable issues, problems that are just given that you have to just kind of chill back and like sit back and say, all right, what's the solution? Like you have to be very solution driven. I think um key is to find simple solution to complicated problems. And a lot of, people a lot of really smart people make the mistake of finding like they create problems like they create a really complicated solution to a really simple problem so like really um simplifying everything to almost like dumb down version of a problem um it's a practice skill you have to practice it a little bit but you just get better at it. and you know um, more time you spend being a business owner, being an entrepreneur, um, you just get better and better and better each, uh, each day. Um, next week you're going to be a different person. Next year you're going to be a different person than you are today. And actually, if you're the same person, that's not good <laughs> right, right? Yeah, not that you should change as a person, but you should expand as a person. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and when you are the business owner, The core of everything is that at the end of the day, everything is your fault or like everything is your problem. There's, you cannot blame anything on anybody. At the end of the day, you're at the head of the company and every, it doesn't matter what happens by when, whom, which employee, which situation at the end of the day, it is your problem. You have to find the solution for it.
1: Yeah. And I mean it's not just finding the solution it's also coping with yourself and like coping with that problem and that pressure right to find the solution. How do you like do you have any personal solutions there in terms of getting yourself through it and finding that path to growth or to acquiring whatever skill it is you need to get there at the moment? You no know, one solution fits everybody because everybody has a different personality, right? Um so
0: uh well first of all but here's the thing. Um, like, I could sit here and say, "Hey, you know, like, uh, don't don't worry." Like, <laughs> the, like, you know that song, "Don't worry, be happy." Oh yeah. <laughs> it's "Don't worry, be happy." But then, like, if I like sat here and said, "Don't worry, like, be happy," um, people would sometimes like people would like literally take it as a literal translation, and like they may have taxes that are due, and they don't have the money in the company, and but they just like go blah blah What it is is being solution-driven entrepreneur. Right. And, uh, um, not taking a lot of the times, like not taking things literally because like, w- like these days, there's so many podcasts. There's so many, like, like even on, like Instagram feed, there's inspirational quotes. Or, like there's a, there's, there is just like a sensory overload of everybody telling you do this, do that, do it. But you have to realize not everybody's solution is the right solution for you. You have to, you have to be able to, have your own like customized formulation, a prescription of your own solution, filter out things that work for you and filter out and keep things that work for you to your unique personality. So for me, I'm a um, like 99 point introvert. I'm a real true introvert. So when I have a problem, when I have issues, my style is to not go talk to people. I need to be alone. So I need to like, I, like I disappear and I need to have time alone and think of and have my like inner self, like really guide me through to the final solution versus some people need to talk it out. It is really independent and it is having the ability to be able to, to sift and filter out what is unnecessary for you, advice for you and keep only what only the nuggets that's right for you
1: tony thank you so much for being here today
0: well thank you for having me thank you so much
1: After speaking with Tony, what really stuck with me is that her ideas about being solution-driven are at once a counter to simply sitting there worrying, and also inherently take into account that every founder's problems are unique. She says we live in a time of Instagram flooding our feeds with inspirational quotes and supposedly sage advice, but advice isn't one-size-fits-all. You are the one who knows your business and your mind, and your body, and you are the only one to find the simplest solution to unforeseen problems that arise. It's not easy, but it is on you, Tony says. For her own part, she's found ways to make the challenging portions of her job and her life more manageable, more interesting, and even more fun. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our show. Drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Or you can also let me know on Twitter directly at Ligorio. Our producer, who makes sure there aren't six layers of markups on this podcast, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Ligorio chavkin Thank you for listening to What I Know.